Before there was Osama bin Laden, before there was Timothy McVeigh, there was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, FBI code name for University and Airline Bomber. For 16 years, Jamie Gehring grew up next door to Ted Kaczynski. She never had a clue that the man who appeared to be a harmless hermit was one of the most notorious serial killers of the 20th century. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here to ask you a chilling question from inside the crime scene tape. Do any of us really know our neighbors? Ted Kaczynski mailed and hand-delivered homemade bombs to people at scientific universities, airlines, and businesses for what he believed was their role in the over-industrialization of society and destruction of nature. The former Berkeley math professor, a certified genius, who entered Harvard at age 15, terrorized America for 17 years between 1978 and 1995. The FBI called Kaczynski a twisted genius. He killed three people and injured 23, claiming limbs and eyesight, leaving many with permanent emotional and physical scars. Residents of tiny remote Lincoln, Montana, thought Kaczynski was an oddball, cranky loner. He lived off the grid in a remote mountain cabin, 10 foot by 12 foot. No running water, no electricity. It was a primitive bomb-making factory. Kaczynski handcrafted bombs from scrap materials that were impossible to trace. He called the bombings experiments. He smelled foul. His hair was unruly, uncombed, and dirty. No one could imagine that he was the anonymous author of a 35,000-word manifesto sent to the New York Times and Washington Post in 1995 threatening more bombings if it was not published. Until then, it was the cold case of all cold cases. It gave the FBI a big break. When it hit the press, Kaczynski's brother and sister-in-law spotted similar somatic railings in letters written to them by their estranged relative, and they contacted the FBI. For 16 years, Jamie Gehring lived next door to this serial killer and wanted domestic terrorist. Her late father, Butch, helped the FBI to find his cabin and to lure him outside. She has written a deeply researched book entitled Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber. Here's our interview. Jamie Gehring, thank you for joining the True Crime Reporter podcast with this uh, very unique story. Let me just start by asking you, what is your first memory of meeting Ted Kaczynski as a child? My first memory, my own memory, not something that's been told to me right. by my parents, um, but my own was when I was around four years old. And the reason that it's, it's so strong in my mind is because I was playing by myself, like I did many times in the town of Lincoln, Montana, um, about four miles from town where our cabin was. And I was playing on the hillside. And I, all of a sudden, I realized that somebody was on the hillside with me. And where we lived in such a rural environment, 
that didn't happen very often. And I soon realized it was our neighbor, Ted Kaczynski. I called him Teddy at the time. And, you know, he, he really did have the ability to appear and disappear like very quickly. I remember in my, in my child mind. And so all of a sudden he was there with me and, you know, we, we spoke for a little while. I waved to him and said, hello, just like I normally would. And that specific day, he had brought me hand-painted rocks as a gift. And I was so appreciative of not only his visit, but also the thoughtful gift that I think that memory really stayed with me as, you know, a, a fond thing that transpired between me and this, and this neighbor of ours. Of course, now knowing who he is, who he was, what he was doing, that memory has changed um, in, in just the way of how I look at it and the perspective. But at the time, it was a, a, a joyous moment, actually. Would you describe his appearance, personality, and how he lived from what you saw later as a teenager, but also what you heard from your parents? Yeah. So just to give you a little perspective, I was born in 1980. So um, it was about 84 when he had come by that particular time. He had purchased the property from my grandfather in 1971 and had become kind of a part of our lives from 1978 until his arrest in 1996. And during that time, his look and his appearance changed pretty vastly, really. He, in those early years, he looked sort of, he sort of resembled that Berkeley professor that first moved to Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And then as the years went on, as he isolated himself in that little 10 by 12 cabin, not only his appearance, but the way it felt to be around him also changed. But the way he looked was in the middle 80s to 90s, there was almost always soot on his face and dirt on his hands. And his clothing looked to be, you know, not only torn, but really falling off of his body. There were holes in his boots. And I mean, you could even sometimes see his foot through his shoes. His hair was disheveled. His eyes were bulging. And, you know, like I said, as those, as the years went on, it just got even more and more extreme. And your parents ran a sawmill. Considering him being so anti-technology and claiming to be an environmentalist, how did that rub him the wrong way? Absolutely. I mean, we didn't quite realize it at the time because he didn't make his opinions on the sawmill clear other than the frustration maybe of people, outsiders around, or the noise sometimes there were disagreements between him and my father about the sawmill and about people that were around Ted's property that my father had hired. But even with his hatred towards industry and technology, he was able to put that aside and come work for my father for a short period of time. 
And, you know, most likely because he needed to fund his campaign of domestic terror. So, yes, he he absolutely despised it. He even now we know he sabotaged my father's sawmill, shutting him down for some time. But he also was able to come work for my father. So I think that's pretty telling. So you in examining his life, you see these contradictions. Yeah, it's it was as though there were these two completely different people I was studying and reading about during the five years that I was researching and writing this book. And that particular example is, um, you know, again, very telling of these two people, this person that just spends his mm-hmm. days and nights writing about his hatred of industry, his hatred of technology. And then the next day is asking for a job in that specific industry. But he has no electricity, no running water. What does the the terrain look like? Because I remember the FBI, they had trouble even getting surveillance pictures. They did have trouble getting surveillance because he was surrounded by very thick timber. During the time in which they were trying to get the images, there was also snow. You're in the middle of Montana in the wintertime. And so... Again, he's about four miles outside of the town of Lincoln. And even that town is very small. It's about a thousand residents. There's one blinking stoplight. You know, there's one small grocery store, a Mm -hmm. post office, but it's very, very small. And outside of his home, he is completely surrounded by trees and running streams and mountains and exactly how you would picture Western Montana. But again, he's absolutely isolated out there. You know, we were a quarter mile away, our cabin was, but he was also surrounded by our family's ranch land. So he was even more insulated well, there was a, a tree he was very fond of, and anytime your dad kind of wanted to get his attention or jolt him into awareness, he would threaten to cut the tree down. Yes, and he did it in most of the time. I think it was in a joking way. Mm-hmm. You know, t- he would say like, "Teddy, you want me to go get the chainsaw?" And Ted knew what that meant. Like the the argument was over as soon as my father had said that, and of course. After Ted was arrested, my father looked back on that moment and it was terrifying that at that point that he had threatened the serial killer next door with something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did Kaczynski ever invite your parents into the cabin or did he ever come into yours? So Kaczynski never invited my parents or myself into his cabin and for good reason you know, when he was arrested, there were guns and bombs and well, a bomb that was constructed and ready to be sent. There was his typewriter that he ended up typing the manifesto on. So it was full of evidence that, of course, he didn't want anybody to witness. However, my parents did invite Ted over. And that really happened in the late 70s, early 80s. So I was still a baby when he was coming over, but he was he was coming over and having dinner with my parents and staying late and playing games of pinochle and really presenting himself as 
yes, an eccentric neighbor, but a seemingly normal mm -hmm. neighbor who would come over and bring gifts and stay for dinner and stay late for a game of Pinochle. But he was already blowing people up at that time. He was. He was. His first bomb was in 1978. So the entire time between 1978 and 1996 at his arrest, he lived right next door to us. And, you know, like I said, in the late 70s, early 80s, he was still coming over and, and pretending as though he was just this average neighbor. Do you think your father is the one person that had the most contact with him? I think over the years, yes. My father is most likely the one person that had the most contact with him. He was friends with a, another neighbor that lived a bit further away for a few years, Chris Waits, and things kind of fell apart between them when Chris got married, which reminds me of kind of what happened when David Kaczynski, Ted's brother, married his wife, Linda. And so the relationship definitely changed. So yes, I think over the years, my father would have been the one who spent the most time with him and who was, who was closest to him. Well, from reading your book, I get the impression your, your dad was the kind of man who thought the best of everyone and maybe would never even have had a hint or a suspicion. So my father was very trusting until he wasn't. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I don't think there were definitely moments where my dad had suspicions. And that first happened that I know of, at least, was when his sawmill was sanded and he was talking to another neighbor, Chris Waits, about it and was saying, you know, I, I think it's possible that it was Ted. I just, that there's just something there. I just have this feeling. And Chris dismissed it and said, oh, no, there's no way that could have, that was, you know, that couldn't have been Ted. He wouldn't do something like that. And my father let it go. And then there were a few more incidents where they had choice words with each other and disagreements. And there was just something that did not feel right to my father. But there was never a time or an incident in which he could have made the jump from eccentric neighbor to the Unabomber. That was just that was too too far. Well, in the book, you tell the story as a little girl. He's coming to the house and looking in the windows of the cabin, y'all's cabin, and pounding on the window. And you're terrified. What changed? So I think it's a combination of things. I think that Ted was more immersed at that time into his campaign of domestic terror. He was spending every moment planning attacks and killing people and then lamenting if he only maimed somebody rather than murdering someone. I think that the years of isolation and, in my opinion, an underlying mental illness and then all the things that created this person just became more and more intensified. And that came out in his demeanor, in his appearance. And then I was getting a little bit older and I was also understanding more of the world around me compared to when I was four on the mountainside with him and I was trusting and innocent. You know, it was when I was nine, 10. And then of course, when I was a teenager, I remember, and I still like 
thinking about it now and talking about it, I still feel the sheer terror that I experienced being around Ted. And so I think it was really just a combination of things that that made me feel differently. Well, the Unabomber was in and out of the news through this whole period. I, th- I think didn't he even take a break at some point? He did. He took a break in the early 80s. Like, I think it was 83, 84. And in my book, I talk about this because it was about the same time that he was coming over and bringing me gifts. And I had these kind of fond memories of him. And so that I think that child in me, that hopeful part of me envisioned that maybe he thought about stopping. But the evidence shows and my interviews with the FBI show that he was really just taking a break to master his killing and improve the effectiveness of his bombs. Well, I I know that you dug through his journals that the FBI recovered from his cabin. What scared you, disgusted you, shocked you? There were many things, honestly, that did all of the above. The two things that stand out in my mind the most that were so incredibly disturbing and tragic was one, when I would read his crime journals that were in the FBI file, and he would talk about his criminal activity and the people that he would attack. And in those writings, he would call these human beings that he set out to kill. He would call them experiments. And there was something about that that was one just unforgettable and just really shook me to to see this person that I knew, this neighbor of ours, talk about the people that he was harming in this way. He even numbered the bombings as experiments. Yes, he did. So I think that would have been, you know, the first thing that I found in my research that really had had a large impact on me and just kind of shaping my understanding of this person and what he was capable of. And then I think, well, I know that for me personally, what I discovered about what was going on in our own shared backyard. So I had I had known what happened on a national level and his crimes, but I didn't know the extent of the violence that was happening in our backyard. And there was an incident in which Ted was in the woods with his rifle and he saw my stepmother and my little sister, Tessa, who at the time was a toddler around two years old. And he was looking at my stepmother and my little sister through the scope of his rifle. And he had later written about that moment in his journals. And he said something like, he could take the big bitch out 
but then the little bitch would be left on the hill. And he went on about it, but reading those horrific words about the people that I loved, it really changed my own feelings and my perspective of this person. I mean, he was no longer Teddy or an eccentric neighbor next door. There was actual proof that we were in danger and that, I mean, that was, that was a really tough, tough discovery. Well, Jamie, I, I grew up in a small East Texas town, rural, and we had a couple of hermits in town. Now they were in town and they were in dilapidated buildings and, and that sort of stuff. And everybody thought they were weird, strange, one bathed on the front porch in a big tin bucket type thing. But we, we would have never imagined they could have been the, a bomber like this, the Unabomber. Once you discovered and you learned it was, it was Ted Kaczynski, did it, people go, oh yeah, we should have known? You know, some people did. But even reading the FBI interviews, of the townspeople after mm -hmm. Ted was arrested, a lot of the population was in disbelief because he did such a good job of creating this facade. And he did. He seemed like he was shy. He was different. In their minds, even in our minds, he could never have harmed anybody or been a killer especially not one that could hide from the FBI from 1978 to 1996. I mean, it was a strong disbelief in most people. Well, he was so unkept and so dirty and smelly, as you describe in the book. How did he get out of there and get on buses to go places to deliver his bombs? So he had a little hotel that he would stay at in Helena, where he would shower and he would shave and he had his specific clothing he would wear for these trips so that he fit in. And it was all part of, of his plan. And he was, like I said, he was so diabolical and so methodical about it that he thought those things through. And then when he came back, I remember when I was writing the book and doing the research, my stepmother saying something like, I, I, she thought that he intentionally would hide after he would return because they wouldn't see him for quite some time. And, you know, that wasn't really normal because he would come in and out of his cabin and he would have to pass our sawmill in order to go into town. And so we saw him quite frequently on his bike or walking in to town. And there would be these big gaps of time where we didn't see him at all. And of course, she had the theory that he had to grow the, the facial hair back and look like mm -hmm. the hermit again before he would see people around town, which made sense. Hard to say is insane. That's very premeditated. Yes, that is very premeditated. That's true. So he rode a bicycle. You've got some pictures there. Could you share, let's describe the bicycle and your memory of it? Yes. Okay, here's the bicycle. 
And so it's a part of a few different bikes that he's put together. Mm-hmm. It's red, red in color. Yes. And, you no know, fenders. <laughs> no fenders. And I remember when he would ride this bike, it always looked so rickety and it seemed wobbly. And of course, he's riding on dirt roads with potholes in them. So that didn't help. But it was almost kind of humorous watching him ride <laughs> this this bike here. And in these pictures that you can see how thick the forest is. Yes, you can see, you know, the terrain around around his home is all you see is trees and, you know, there's a stream, but there's really no seeing uh, even Ted's cabin um, no. from no. the adjacent property. Anything else there you want to direct my attention to? Yeah, you one? know, I found... One of the journal entries that I cite in my book is Ted talking about how he feels free to to litter in the forest as needed. And again, one of those huge contradictions I was talking about earlier. But this is the trash pile that was right next to his home. And it was just full of all of these tin cans and jars. It was really a pretty big eyesore. And it was surprising that that was that close to this pristine little cabin. So much for his desire for the purity of the environment. even talked about the need for pure air. He didn't like the sound of your your dad's sawmill, nothing disturbing him. Right, exactly. Let's talk about your dad's role with the Forest Service Ranger and the FBI agent. Uh, uh, tell me about them. And uh, that FBI agent really seemed smart and on the ball and great disguises they had. And can you walk us through that? How, how do they get into this remote area and surprise him the way they do without a shootout? Yeah. So I think this is such an interesting part of the case in the investigation. FBI agent Max Knoll was the arresting officer on the Unabomb task force. And months before Kaczynski was arrested, he came to the town of Lincoln to really, you know, of course, to see if, if he could see the property and see the house and, and plan the arrest and the worst, worst case possible, what, what would happen if, if Ted tried to flee and where he would go and all of those things. But he was also just trying to get an idea of the town and how people lived. So he spent some time there doing surveillance as well as going to Helena and doing surveillance there. And he then took the next step and decided that he wanted to meet my father. Because again, my father was somebody that had been neighbors with Ted for so long that wasn't out of place around Ted's property. And Max needed to know if he could trust my dad because he thought he might need his help. And so Jerry Burns, the Forest Service agent, was a childhood friend of my dad's. Again, very small, tight-knit community. And Max had already reached out to Jerry. So Jerry introduced my father to Max. And it didn't take long for them to both ascertain that they could trust one another, Max and my dad. And during their first conversation, 
Max Knoll told my dad that they were looking into some threatening letters that our neighbor Ted had written. And that was very easy to believe. And as they continued to talk, Max decided it was appropriate to share the truth. And that was, of course, that they were looking into him because he was the suspected Unabomber. And it, it took my dad some time to process. And he still had his reservations if Ted could really be the Unabomber again, living in this rural environment, no heat, no electricity, this 10 by 12 cabin. How could he possibly run this campaign of domestic terror for so long and, you know, essentially trick the FBI? But he knew Max was there for a reason. And so he offered to take Max up to the cabin because they, again, they were dressed just like anybody in Lincoln, Montana would be with their jeans and Western snap front shirts. And they looked like they could be minors. They fit the part. Did they, they actually, you know, wasn't he in a scuffed up pickup truck that maybe had a mining label or (laughs) decal on the side? They really had a good cover. Yeah, they they thought of everything. They had these rented dent trucks, basically, that they rented for the time they were there. And they had a little placard of the of mm-hmm. a name of the a mining local mining company in the vehicle. And so I think like the Hollywood version is all these FBI agents and their big black suburbans, but it was not like that at all. Afterwards with the press there, it looked similar to that. But they did such a good job of fitting in. And then, you know, Max knew that he needed the assistance of a citizen he could trust and that Ted would trust. And so, I mean, that thinking of that was, was so important to not only the investigation, but to the, the safety of the arrest as well. And so, yeah, on that day, Max was able to go up to this cabin of this, you know, this man they had been hunting Mm -hmm. for so long. And they just planned on getting a little glimpse of the cabin and then returning back to the sawmill. And of course, my, my dogs started barking at a deer and chasing a deer. And so there was all this ruckus outside. And they were a few hundred feet away from the cabin. And Tad Kaczynski comes out the door and to see what the noise is. And that was the first time Max had set his eyes on this person that was maiming and murdering Mm -hmm. people for decades. And he couldn't believe that this could be their man, just based on his appearance, based on where he was living. And so then after that, my father did everything he could to help the FBI. He reported back to Max on if there were footsteps in the snow, for instance, or, or smoke coming out of the chimney, just to let them know if he was in the home, if he was somehow leaving and they, they didn't see that. And then when they were unable to get the images of the cabin and the terrain, My father went out there with his little handheld video camera, the same video camera he recorded Christmas and birthdays on, and took footage of 
not only Kaczynski's cabin, but the surrounding so that they could truly plan for the arrest. So yeah, my, my dad was a, a very large part of the investigation and the success of the arrest. And when I initially reached out to Max Knoll, when I was doing this research and writing my book, he responded with basically like, of course, I want to help you. Your dad was my eyes and my ears of this investigation. And I couldn't have done it without him. And if my dad had already passed away by the time I was writing this. And he was so secretive about many things on the investigation that it gave me a whole new perspective and a whole new level of respect for what my father had contributed. Yeah. Well, and your father eventually took the FBI back with a Forest Service agent under the guise of checking property lines for the mining company. And that got Kaczynski outside and they took him into custody without a, surprisingly without no fight. It was just such a surprise. Yeah, it was Max Knoll and Tom McDaniel and Jerry Burns that approached the cabin. And my father told them to ask Ted for him to come out so that he could show them where his property lines were because they were from this mining company and they were doing mm -hmm. some surveying. And it was the perfect ruse because otherwise Ted was not coming out of that cabin. But if it had anything to do with his property and his space, mm -hmm. then they, they knew that he would cooperate. And as soon as he was, you know, stepping out of the cabin, that's when they tackled him and read the Miranda rights. And of course, the rest is history. After Kaczynski was found guilty, there were victim statements in the courtroom. And you've, you've been through all of them. You include some of them in your book. Could you read a little from the most poignant ones so listeners really get a sense of what happens to families in violent crime? Yes. And I, I will say that I have been, I've been asked pretty frequently about why I didn't interview the victims for my book. And while I did, I, in my mind, I, I would say that David Kaczynski, Ted's brother, is a victim of this story and this tragedy. I did interview him. I interviewed the FBI who, who lost so much time you know, with their mm -hmm. families and focused on this criminal I interviewed them, and I think they're a victim in some way, although they were doing their jobs. I had already found the victim impact statements, and I really felt that they had, one, said all they re really needed to say for yes. us to understand how this has affected them. And two, I didn't want to bring this up for them again, yet again. I'm sure mm -hmm. they're still living it, but... These impact statements, I mean, I, I, I honestly still think about them. And when I narrated my book for Audible, I had to stop a few times while reading them because I just got so choked up in response to this raw emotion that you know, they're communicating and, and picturing them in a courtroom, especially saying these words was, I mean, it was just so heartbreaking. 
the one I'll read is from Susan Moser, who lost her husband, Thomas. And she says, It was the worst day of my life, but only the beginning of the nightmare that is the Unabomber. My children are bleeding from their souls. Sometimes it is a pinprick. Sometimes it is a hemorrhage. To lose your father this way is unfathomable. And even three and a half years later, we are still processing this horror. If it processed all at once, you jump off a bridge. Every holiday has pain, every Father's Day, every birthday, every graduation, every award, every everything. Even in jail, a serial killer wants to kill, and Kaczynski will use his manipulative mind to try to figure out how, if he hasn't already. He is a diabolical, evil, conniving murderer. He has no cause except his own, that is to kill, anyone. Please, Your Honor, make this sentence bulletproof, bombproof, if you will. Don't let Kaczynski murder justice the way he murdered others. Please keep this creature out of society forever in every way possible. Make this sentence as permanent for him as he has made ours, Tom's and the others. His so-called causes are a smokescreen for his only objective, to kill anything that is alive. Lock him down so that when he does die, he'll be closer to hell. That's where the devil belongs. And indeed they have. He's in the supermax of supermax units, where I doubt if he even sees night and day, probably sees nothing but concrete. Yes, he actually has been moved from Supermax, but that is until last December. That's where he Mm -hmm. resided, and he only was moved because the prison system felt it was appropriate to move him to Butner FMC. But yes, for, for years, he resided in a very small cell with concrete walls, you know, surrounded by beautiful Rocky Mountains, but not ever being able to see them. And you wrote to him. I did write to him and it's something that I've always wanted to do. I think there was part of me that still wanted some sort of closure for me to acknowledge what he's done. And, you know, I think there was a part of me that hoped maybe all these years and this tiny little cell, he would look back on his actions and his crimes. And, you know, maybe there was an apology there for everything he put my family through. And of course, that was naive. And that was that, that was that part of the child, I suppose, in, in, in there still that had hoped for that. And of course, he did not apologize. I know that's not shocking. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to remind our listeners that the book is Madman in the Woods. And over the years, as I've followed this case, this really is a very different perspective to, to talk to somebody and hear the story of, of, of a family that was probably the closest to him. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. The Unabomber case remains an indelible chapter in the annals of true crime history. 
serving as a haunting reminder of the destructive power of a single individual and the enduring impact of their actions. We are seeing that carried out today in an epidemic of deadly mass shootings by madmen. My interview with Jamie Gehring left me wondering, do we really know our neighbor next door? You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.